you have to move fast. You have to be a little reckless. You have to be a little careless. I think my mindset was kind of suited to that. Like that's just kind of my style is like shoot from the hip, move quick, have a bias towards action. What's up everybody? Kevin Wagstaff, Mike Wagstaff here. This is Bootstrapping SaaS to Millions. Lessons learned, tips, stories from our journey going from zero to an eight-figure business. Mike, what's going on? Hey. So this week kind of made up the topic on the on, on spot. I want to talk about moving fast versus moving slow with your startup and with our startup. Um, this is top of mind for me because we just had a product meeting yesterday. We talked about scoping, planning, and I, I just felt like things are slowing down. And we felt this for, for months or even a year or two, right? Of the natural progression of going, moving slower as you get bigger. So one is specifically hear your take on this, because in the early days, you were the king of pushing out amazing quick features that wowed our customers. Feedback loops were really short. So I guess what's your what are your thoughts on this as a topic? And then I want to hear of like the early days of the, uh, the exhilaration of just running and gunning. Oh, it's so different now, isn't it? Yeah. That product meeting yesterday where it's just like our developers come to us and they're just like, Hey, we need way more time. We need more product people talking to customers and writing out issues and scoping things. We need our, you know, dev team to spell things out more of where in the code base, these things need to happen and what exists already versus what needs to be built. And yeah, we're just thinking, damn, we're, we're not going to churn anything out and, you know, <laughs> at a reasonable pace, but it all makes so much sense. It, it's, it's necessary, but it's so different. And I think it's because of the risk and reward proposition. Yeah. Like we, when you have zero customers, there's zero risk. If you just crank things out and unlimited reward, getting more customers quickly, so rewarding. Not only does it feel good, but then you make money, which can enable all the other things. And then, um, yeah, you have nothing to lose, right? You throw something out there. You're just going by gut. You're going by intuition. I know we didn't feel like we knew the industry super well. So we talked to a couple inspectors and they'd have an idea. and we're like, That makes sense. Let's do it. Now we have meetings and committees and interviews. And yeah, it is so, so different. Yeah, like what were your feelings um, around certain pieces of that meeting yesterday? You know, the f- reconciling two parts of the brain, one of understanding that this is necessary because there's 5,600 people now that would see a feature done incorrectly or not implemented correctly, the button's in the wrong place, doesn't make sense. And that just like is a kind of a snowball effect on support, on product, on sales now. And so understanding all that while still trying to fight off becoming like a big monolith dinosaur that just, you know, like big corporations, everyone just talks about like, oh, they can be disrupted because they move at a snail's pace. So it was holding back certain comments and thoughts in favor of like, okay, just, you know, which is harder for me to just let it marinate and see where it plays out. Um, and, kind of letting go and giving trust to, to the people that we've empowered to, to kind of manage this process. That's, yeah. that's a huge part of it is just, it's easy as the bosses just to say like, just get this done, just get it out there. We just care about action and motion versus believing in a long-term process now that needs to be done lots of times. So all of that. 
my wife the other day was giving me flack for not having the garage all organized. Like I'm putting up cabinets and wall stuff and shelving. And it reminded me of when I used to work for bosses that had no idea what engineering was or like everything that went into it. And they were like, oh, we'll just do the thing and do it like this week. And you'd have to kind of break down. Okay, well, what about this use case? What about if this happens? Do we account for these errors? Hey, this might impact this other system. And, you know, nobody really understands all the planning and the work behind it. And that's the hard part now that we're at our, you know, position where, yeah, it's not in our heads, all the details. We don't need to know all the details. That's why we hire great developers. They work out the details. Implementation is on them. Now we're thinking strategically. We're thinking about what needs to happen, but you're absolutely right. We need to have patience. Um, here, here's how the product thing used to work when it's just you and me. You'd maybe talk to an inspector. You'd be like, hey, here's the problem this guy's having. I would think, oh, I know how to solve that. Just like some different neurons in my brain based on intuition, being a designer and developer for a decade or more. Just materializes as some thoughts. I start banging out some code do a few tweaks, make it look good, ship it. That could have all happened within a few hours or a day, right? Now, what's our process? Now we have people that are on our support team manning a chat bubble that hear about a problem a few times and they think, hey, I, I just think we should do this thing to solve this problem they heard about a few times. And that's being aggregated with a number of other problems that maybe somebody in our product team is hearing about and trying to say, are these the same problems or are these different problems? okay, now let me think about a solution. Now let me run this by a few dozen customers to make sure we're not going to implement it wrong, screw things up for existing customers, change any existing functionality. And then they send it to the, our lead of the engineering team who scopes it out, says, hey, here's where the existing pieces of our code are. Here's the things that might need to change. Here's the things that are out of scope. And then they send, he sends it to one of our engineers who then implements it. Then it gets sent to QA. QA tests it, sends it back to an engineer and says, hey, this breaks and this doesn't work and this looks weird. Goes back and forth a few times before it finally goes back to our client success team to announce and say, hey, look what we built. That's why it takes so long to move when you get bigger. <laughs> Which there's just so much importance then on these meetings where we decide what to work on, you know, and it just... It adds so much more weight. You know, I think our questions are getting more specific of like, well, how many people are experiencing this? Um, and it really becomes, we're trying to make it become less emotional, right? Because everyone's problems are obviously a fire drill and the most important thing to build. But boy, anyone that's in B2B SaaS knows you get 10 different opinions from 10 different people on how to implement any given feature. And boy, it's just, it's just the hardest part of this stage, I feel like is knowing what voice to listen to. <laughs> yeah, and here's the consequences of not doing it right. We have a dev team that's like, what, five, six people strong now. And if they start sprinting off in the wrong direction, you waste a lot of time. That's the most expensive resource. That's our, that's our spend right there is our engineering team for the most part, right? Yes. And so, yeah, we've caught issues where somebody was working on something for a week and then you look at it and you're like, wait, this thing already exists. You just needed to modify this thing that existed already. Why are you building it all from scratch? And they're like, I've only been here a month. I don't know. And so, oh, well, we could have saved a ton of time by just writing up the issue with a little bit more of the specifics. Um, we've caught issues where 
people are just implementing something that doesn't make sense for the user. They interpreted the words in the issue as it was written up one way. It was intended enough another way. That's like a product scoping issue where the product team is supposed to really boil down and almost kind of design an interface maybe and like point for point how it should be instead of leaving it to engineers that don't really maybe understand the industry as deeply as everybody else does. So yeah, you don't want to squander all that spend on your, your most expensive people. One thing we're as a team trying to focus on is during this process of slowing down, your customers still need to feel heard and our customers still need to feel heard. And that takes people and bodies and emails and calls. And so we were staffing up to, to maybe have more man and woman hours to dedicate to that because it's such an art, right? Of like, hearing their concerns, making them feel heard while giving them maybe a time frame or not, and then prioritizing. And sometimes the answer is, Hey, we just weren't, this isn't prioritized yet. It inevitably is going to lead to upset customers. And I think that's the harsh reality. I think that everyone has to face. And as people pleasers, we're probably having a little bit of a harder time of, of no. feeling that disgruntled feeling, right? Like do you, like, how's that feel for you when we feel that from customers? We're like, oh, you've been so happy for so long and now you're. Luckily, my skin has thickened over the years. I think mm -hmm. um, that's almost essential in the product role um, because you can't please everybody. It's impossible. We've let down so many people because there's only so much time. There's only so much money and you can only do so much before your product becomes a convoluted mess. So you have to kind of rule out some good ideas because it's just too much or maybe too much too soon, or it needs to be eventually broken off into a separate product. And that's, that's really hard. That's so hard. Um, yeah. It, it's a mental gymnastics, as you said earlier, of like, what do we do? How do we do it right? How do we do it well? And that's the art of product. And you're right. It takes a ton of time too, because now we need more people to talk to customers about these very specific things it used to be you were on chat, you'd hear about something, you'd ping me, I'd get on chat, ask all the questions I needed to. While I'm asking, I'm formulating the solution in my head. And um, it's very, very different now, isn't it? Even at a thousand users, it felt manageable. It felt like out of, you know, out of the thousand, a couple hundred were VIPs or early adopters or like megaphone type people that we could get in touch with. We could send out a blast, we'd get 10, 20 responses felt like we had a good handle on it. It was, it was the thousand to 2000 jump where it was like, Oh, we don't talk to everybody. We can't even get in touch with half of these people because they won't even answer us because they're busy. So now we're coming up on 6,000 and it's just a lot of noise. And I mean, 6,000, when you think about some tech companies, that's not a lot, you know, there's companies, how many, you know, customers, yeah. Zoom. but um, for us, it feels like a cacophony of noise that we're just trying to filter out. Like, what is the, what's the signal here? And anyone in niche B2B SaaS probably understands this, but when you do so much for like a niche industry in your platform, obviously the, the scope widens and you handle so much more for like a Zoom or, you know, Spotify or whatever, any of these companies, it's like consumer facing. It, it does a very specific function or two, whereas ours is our customers have direct access to talk to me and you like that's yeah. unheard of at bigger consumer companies. And so the, the plight, of SaaS founders to me is just, it's just such a different mental framework that you have to operate from because yeah. you're juggling way more. 
So I guess what's our advice to SaaS founders of like when to move fast, when to move slow? Like I, I believe in the beginning, you have to move fast. You have to be a little reckless. You have to be a little careless. I think my mindset was kind of suited to that. Like that's just kind of my style. It's like shoot from the hip, move quick, have a bias towards action. Just mistakes will happen and you just clean them up afterwards. Uh, if you look at the stuff I just did in my garage, there's a lot of holes in the wall that shouldn't be there. There was a lot of mistakes that I had to redo, but that's just how I move. I think in the early stages, do that as much as possible. Ask for forgiveness because again, risk is low, reward potential is really high. Pair it with great communication. Yeah. Cause I think that's what, that's where we like had that good bounce back kind of dynamic of announce that something's getting pushed out, announce that we're just getting features out quick or if something's in beta and then be ready for the feedback. I think too many, I think I would guess that the average developer ships a feature, hides in the cave, and then people are pissed and don't have any sounding board. Whereas I think we, we stayed connected to people. You reacted really quickly with changes. That's how you can build loyalty. um, I think is having that, that open dialogue. Yeah. If you remember when we first started, people flock to us, like the early adopters, they're ready for this. They're, they're the ones that want to see quick things happen. They want to give input and then they are going to be delighted and thrilled that it's happening. And they're going to kind of look past the, the white screens, the errors, the, the 500s, the, you know, the next flock of people after the first few hundred, they're, they're less tolerant, but still understanding that like, Hey, I'm an early adopter because they're leaving some company that quote, no longer listens. You know, the company that got probably to our size now where it was a lot harder to implement things quickly and it was a lot harder to navigate all the different voices. And so I think when you're early on, gotta take advantage of that. You gotta be super nimble, super agile because your competitors aren't because they're trying to not piss off several thousand customers, which is a very different mindset than, hey, we have everything to gain by just pleasing one guy at a time. Yeah, and I'd, I'll pair that with moving fast in terms of, your content, you know, anything you put out there, that's an area to move fast. And I, I still say, even now that's an area you can always move fast in is put out a YouTube video. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get your face and content out there. That's an area I'm always in favor of moving fast. And if I can give some advice here, I think this is where having a technical co-founder is so important. When you hear about kind of the quote business guy that just outsources to some, you know, company, maybe in a different time zone on the other side of the world, where the cycle is so slow and maybe the mentality and granted, I'm no expert in outsourcing. Like I haven't worked a ton with offshore teams, especially um, in other countries, but from what I've heard, sometimes you have to scope things out a lot more. There's a lot more um, detail that you have to give them. And then there's a lot more cycles of, of feedback before something's exactly as you want it. And if you're always having to wait overnight for them to wake up, do some stuff, send it to you, and that's the end of your day, that is really hard to move fast and be quick. And then you might miss the mark because stuff gets lost in translation. I think there's no better way than to, you know, be in the same time zone, preferably the same room, and be super engaged um, between the dev side and the side that's talking to the potential customers. You know, when you put it that way, it, it makes me really against remote at the beginning stages for anybody because it's so hard to to feel that energy to feel the velocity and uh and customers just kind of wander away if you don't keep them engaged for an extended period of time yeah 
I guess you and I were technically remote. I mean, we lived like a half hour apart, but we were remote for the first year. And then it started, as soon as we started getting like, once we hit a hundred customers, we were like, we got to be sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. We got a tiny office where we had no choice, but to sit almost shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, and that's, that's, you know, it, it just enhanced the communication so well. That is funny. The path we took in terms of remote to office, back to remote. And then now yeah. I, want, I want an office again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of forced our hand, but uh, yeah. True. <laughs> true. Um, let's talk about meetings because everyone hates meetings, right? Or most people do. I'm coming back to seeing the value. Cause when I was a home advisor, I was like, man, the product teams do tons of meetings. I sat in on a few but product QA, there was the you know beginning of the sprint. There was the retro. I get why now at that because Home Advisor had a thousand people, fifteen hundred or so when I was there. I'm starting to realize, man, as product team kind of forms here, there's a it's the mental gymnastics. You got to sit in a room or a Zoom room to talk through these things a lot. So how are you thinking about more meetings, and do you see them as being a good thing? Oh, I was the quintessential rebel that just hated meetings when I was in you know larger companies. I was just like, man, a lot of time gets wasted here. Um, And I think meetings can be a waste of time. The right people need to be involved. The right agenda needs to be set. And like, there should be no extraneous people. There should be no additional fluff pulled into a meeting that doesn't apply to everybody because it's a lot of human hours. Once you get a big group in together for a half hour, that's a lot of money being spent. But they're so important if you don't have alignment and common understanding of a direction ahead. Because again, the biggest danger is you send a person or a team in the wrong direction. So then not only do they have to undo all the things that they maybe did, but then they have to start over. And that's way more wasted resource than having a few people talk through something and whiteboard something for a half hour. And so you're right, like products never used to be a team or a division within our company. It used to be me thinking to myself and making some scribbles in a notebook. And now, yeah, It's a multi-person team. We are going to start talking. We're going to keep talking a lot more. It's going to be more meetings as we go forward. But doing that is going to preserve the efficiency of our engineering team. And that's basically, and make sure that we're doing the right things so that the customers are all wowed with what we do. Nothing breaks, nothing like unanticipated happens, like doing all that research up front instead of the kind of guess and check methodology that we used to have, which worked great. And so, yeah, I, I think as you grow, things inevitably have to slow. How do you keep a, a decent cadence? And I think that's that's what we're figuring out. I mean, we'll keep talking about it here. Yeah, what's hilarious is I feel like we need to have a 10-minute meeting to talk about who needs to be in the, the product meeting, you know, like a meeting to talk about who's going to be in the meeting. <laughs> um, staying connected to the customers is such a, it's important. And then I, I in, in the meeting the other day, it's almost like you have to have different personality types. And that speaks to having a diverse team, right? Of someone who is saying, yeah, we should probably talk to some customers. And then someone on the other side saying like, well, at what point have we talked to enough customers and we need to take action on this if you go six months or a year or whatever. And so there's that, that balance and there's an art to it, I think with an executive team or any team. Yeah. And it's one thing for our client success team, who is on the chat bubble talking to customers all the time. Like we talked to hundred customers every hour. Right. But that's a different, who, who gravitates towards support? It's the people that want to help that want to be pleasing, that want to just here, here's a, a solution to your issue. 
the product team needs to be kind of the, um, you know, they're, they're a little bit more curmudgeon -y. They're like, no, we're not going to do stuff. We need to think about the long-term, the whole, we're not going to please everybody. And so you have these two kind of different mentalities that need to coexist to create a good product. And that's why product teams exist, right? They have a different kind of call with the user, a different kind of Zoom, where they're like asking very specific questions and trying to figure out why shouldn't we do this? Is there another way to do this? Is there a workaround? Is this the best solution? And those questions are very different than what a client success person that's on the chat bubble trying to help somebody immediately. Well, that's a different mindset. Not everybody can shift gears between those two mindsets. And so, yeah, that's why sometimes these problems arrive from some chat support, come to our product team, and then more conversations need to happen because the inspector thought, hey, you just add this screen and a button right here and it just gives me the output. Product team's going to ask a bunch of why, why, why until they say, oh, your problem is this. The solution that you propose is just a Band-Aid. Let's go back to the original problem instead of just fixing symptoms and like address why you need this data in the first place. Maybe it needs to you know, be set up in another way to where you don't need that data because we can build a direct integration with whatever. So that saves you the process of some, you know, whatever spreadsheet export that you need to import to another thing, blah, blah, blah. And so such different mentalities. We bounce around the idea of should everybody think like a product person or should it be a very focused thing? And we've gone back and forth. I don't know. what What's your answer to that right now? Right now, I would say early on, it made sense. And we probably should have started having product trainings, you know, like, and we were learning this as we were going to. So it's like, it was, it would have been all five or six of us at the time learning how to think like a product owner. And it feels like it makes sense then because everyone's doing everything right. And everyone has equal input. It's weighted equally or similar, but now it's boy, when you have a customer's client success team of 10, soon to be 12, it's like, man, okay. How, how much training can we carve out and are they going to have the space and room to have those product conversations? And so I don't know is the, is the answer. <laughs> yeah. You start to get why com bigger companies do it. Like they specialization. Do. I'm, I'm leaning towards specialization and you pluck people out that you see competencies with, like you said, the ability to think slow critically, maybe you do a few training sessions and then you let them take a few tier two or three chats that are product related. So uh, that's my instinct as of today. And what, what's the theme here? It's that there's no single right answer. It's for whatever stage you're in and you have to constantly reinvent yourself. That's the biggest key to all of it is what works now might not work when you double your customer base. What got you here is not going to get you there. And that's why you need to constantly be reevaluating, consuming information, thinking about what people a little bit bigger than you are, are doing. That's, um, that's the art of growing a company, right? It's one thing to just get a product out there and a few people are paying for it. It's another thing entirely to move towards, I guess, market domination, right? There's so many steps in between. Maybe that's the Naval type wisdom in why to start a company is it, it prevents you from ever having a fixed mindset. Yeah. I guess that's why one of our big hiring things is how are you constantly improving everybody that we look for on our team right now has to have that improvement mentality because we know how much we're going to change. We know how many pivots we've had, how many structural changes we've had, how many almost governing philosophies we've had. We've changed things a lot, sometimes month to month and uh, definitely quarter to quarter. And so, yeah, that's um, it's fascinating. I will say yeah, we're slowing down in certain areas, 
But what we're trying to do is carve out almost mini startups within our now, you know, medium-sized business that can still move fast. How can we give one person that has a product mindset that maybe can write code as well, or a small team, a small pod, and say, hey, this is like this new thing, and you can move like the early days. You can move quick because right now nobody's opted into using this add-on product or this add-on feature. And so move quick, throw stuff out there, get feedback from a few people that you know this is kind of, that's the target uh, niche. And just iterate, iterate, move fast, let things have a few errors in it. Don't have it go through the whole big process. And then once it gets to a certain point, you can do that. Then you can turn it over to the, the bigger ecosystem. And um, that's something where I'm still trying my best to, to experiment with, writing some code and, and just moving quick and doing what I know suits my personality style. Whereas, yeah, we have the engineers that are very careful, the product people that are more like, hey, slow your roll, hold the reins a little bit. And that, yeah, that makes sense when stuff is in production and is more mainstream. But yeah, carving out these fast moving things within our company I think is like this essential piece to staying competitive and staying, you know, agile, even as the bigger thing grows. Yeah. The Google approach, right. They yeah. kind of paved the way for in incubating little things within their, within their uh, ecosystem. Hopefully, hopefully yeah, I'm hoping we can do that with contractor SaaS and just get something out there and start building it up. Yeah. Um, Hiring is an interesting area where I feel like we have two different sides to the business. Cause I feel like on the dev side, we have hired fast. We've moved fast on candidates because we knew what we were looking for. And we, we kind of had a bottleneck client success side. I feel like we've implemented a kind of a three interview process that feels slow, but we're getting more people in the hopper. So it's like, we're quick to take, you know, have first interview calls. We have plenty of job posts available, but then once they're in, it could take a couple of weeks. But then when we find the right person, it's like an offer and you're starting like tomorrow. So it's almost like slow and fast all within this process. But the key theme is process. Yeah. And a lot of it depends on the need, right? If you're just getting hammered and your support queue is like 100 chats deep, you might be hiring some people that might you know, not get hired if you are always like, yep, yeah, our support team just kind of chilling and waiting for the next chat to come in. Um, engineering, you know, if you have this massive backlog of high priority critical features, that's a very different thing than, hey, we're doing really well and we just need to kind of figure out what else to improve on. And so, yeah, your needs, your um, what's the pain of not moving fast on hiring can determine a lot. I will say too, we've, we've also felt the pain of taking that bait and hiring fast when we were in need. And then a couple of them are no longer with us because they weren't a good fit. And then we had to rehire. And so it, it's a, it's like meditating, right? When they say like, Oh, when you're busy, you should meditate for twice as long or whatever. It's almost like when you're busy, you should take twice as long to hire, but it's hard. I think we, we've done it probably four or five times where it's oh. feel like you just need to fill a seat. We're, yeah. And we're still learning because the cost of a mishire you know, not only is there the whole process of the hiring phase, but then the training and onboarding and the emotional energy, people start making connections and want to get to know these new people. And then suddenly, oh, they're gone. That's, that's tough on a team. It's tough on team morale. So you want to hire well. And you're right. You should never, I think the lesson we've learned is don't wait until the pain is so great that you need to hire. Because that's what we used to do, right? Early days, it's like, We'd wait until everybody was stressed and taxed to the limit. And then it's like, okay, let's, let's hire now because we were kind of using revenue as an indicator for when to hire. 
Now we're saying, what, what pains will exist in three months, in six months? Let's start the hiring process for that now so that we can keep pushing that pain horizon down a little bit and a little bit until we just feel really good and that we have, you know, it, it kind of feels like a little bit of um, spend that we don't have to make, but it's spend that saves us from future pain. And I don't know, it feels good for this space. It's nice that we have a comfortable profit margin that we can do that. A lot of it's dependent on that, right? Yeah. And I love it in a, in a, in a, another different way too, of it's like a bet on your, on ourselves. It's like a, a, in a way, a double down on, we're going to make up that spend and some, and it challenges us to kind of get that profit margin back in a sense. And so in a way it's manifesting growth, uh, you know, of saying like, no, we're going to, we're going to keep this train going as opposed to, we were probably a bit, you know, cautious and fear-based as we should have been because we didn't have VC money. Um, And so now's the time to kind of be a little more aggressive and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, you have no idea if something's going to work. So you don't take as many monetary risks. Once you know, once you have validation, like, oh yeah, we got something good here. We just need to get it out to more people. We just need to make it higher quality and beat out our competitors. Oh, that's totally different. That's a different mindset entirely. We can't take more risks with money because it's an investment. It's going to turn into more money. In the beginning, when you don't know that, yeah, it rightfully should be a little bit more guarded with spending frivolously. Yeah. Um, let's see. What the, the other thing that comes to mind for me is how how I approach email partners, other you know administrative decisions. Um, I feel like there's certain ones now. I'm very quick to delete, unsubscribe, say no, just in general, that kind of has to become the default at this point. Cause we, we don't have an executive assistant. We, we both still do our share of grunt work, probably to a detriment. JP's always telling us like, dude, you should have had an EA yesterday. <laughs> um, so that's an area. Uh, how are you on that front? Do you feel like your, your yes, your hell yeah or no instinct applies there? I ignore a lot of emails, man. <laughs> like, I think, um, yeah, you get to the stage that we're at as kind of co-CEOs of a company and you get a hundred emails a day from people that want to invest in you, people that want to acquire you, people that are wanting to partner with you and integrate with you. Um, it, and it's, there's a lot of noise and you only have so much mental attention units you can distribute. And a lot of times I want to keep those focused internally. And so yeah, I kind of skim my email. I still have like 7,000 unread emails in my inbox. And I just don't, the things that I, I like to be very proactive in like what we need. So should we ever decide we need funding? Okay, we'll get re- really proactive. Maybe I'll do some searches on old emails and be like, hey, just respond to somebody eight months later. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> Take your but, money now. Yeah, but just being reactive and trying to sort through all of that is too much of a mental tax that takes you away from where hopefully, you know, you can continue to add the most value. And so, yeah, I don't know if this really fits into the moving fast and slow thing, but like, yeah, I'm very slow to react when it comes to biz dev partnerships, integrations, all of those things can take a back burner because I believe I know what our highest leverage um, places to spend time are. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar. And you kind of just build an instinct for it. I feel like, or there's certain ones where you're like, okay, this feels like the most important thing. Even if I zoomed out and looked at everything from, you know, hundred foot, thousand foot view. Um, cool. Anything else on this front that you, uh, that you think about? Huh? Nothing coming to mind right now. 
Cool. That's good, man. That, that, that's good for the episode for me. That was, that was the biggest thing in terms of product velocity that's on my mind. So man, hopefully we had some value. Yeah. Right on. All right. Cool. cool. All right. Thanks everybody. Talk to you next week. Later. Later. Bye.